Good morning, everybody. It's wonderful to see everybody here. So if you all could do me a favor, go on ahead and open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12. And kind of keep your thumb there. And while you're getting there and holding your spot, uh, just kind of lean an ear into it because there's a whole lot of ground to cover and we can't read all of it because we would be here all morning. So while you're putting your thumb in uh, chapter 12, we're going to kind of set the scene a little bit because over the last few weeks as we've been going through Bible recap, we've been talking about the life of King David. That's where we're at. And the first and second Samuel, first Chronicles, going into Second Chronicles kind of area of Scripture chronologically. And over the last few weeks, we've learned some really interesting and really amazing things about David as a person. It turns out he's a pretty remarkable guy. He's not just your sort of average Joe around Israel, apparently. Because God describes him first and foremost as a man after his own heart. And we see that get fleshed out in his life. I mean, this is a dude who goes and casually kills lions. You ever done that? Probably not. I mean, one dude did, and then the internet lit him up. That's a different thing. Uh, Then he went and fought the largest guy in the Philistine army, totally unarmored with nothing more than a sling. And then after he knocks the guy out with a rock, he kills the dude with his own sword. That is hardcore. I've never done that either. And then whenever the king, his best friend's dad, tries to murder him on a number of occasions where he has every right to say, knock that out and take the guy out, which he could have on a number of occasions, he doesn't because he so respects the fact that that is my king and that is God's anointing. And even though Saul keeps coming at him and at him and at him, he never really rejects Saul as his king. He constantly respects that position and that anointing. And then whenever he's asked by foreign leaders to fight against his own countrymen, which would make total sense because the king has come after him with Israel's forces on a number of occasions. He has every right to turn his back on Israel. He refuses to raise his sword against Israel. And then whenever he finally becomes king, he takes the guy that he thought murdered Saul and has him executed because how dare somebody strike the Lord's anointed. And really, so far in his life, his biggest mess up, get this, is getting too excited to bring the ark back into the city. I'm not going to belittle that because the dude died. But in the grand scheme of things, that's like in the interview when they say, what's your biggest flaw? And I say, I'm too organized. I'm just too organized. I'm too caring. I'm too good at everything. That's really, that's really what that is in the grand scheme of things. And we just get this rapid-fire montage of all of David's successes. If you just see all these chapters, it's just like, oh, David does this right. Oh, he defeats these people. He defeats these people. He defeats those people. He grows in stature. He grows in wealth. He grows in wisdom. And he's constantly protecting God's people from encroaching enemy forces. It's nothing but a victory montage all throughout these chapters. Just rapid-fire about how awesome David is. 
And then randomly, the text comes to a screeching halt. And we make a sharp left turn whenever we stop looking at the overarching goodness of David's rule and hone in on one specific moment. And granted, this probably didn't come up out of nowhere in David's life. This was probably a slow burn that rolled into this. But for us as a reader, it just seems like a jarring thing that's entirely out of David's character. But I'm certain you're all going to be very familiar with this text whenever it says, And in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and he was walking around on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. And now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. And so she told David, I am pregnant. Like I said, really sharp turn for David in his character, for all the things that he's doing. That suddenly the guy who had songs declared about him even before he became king, that David had killed his thousands of thousands, that he's this great warrior, suddenly he's just not a warrior anymore. Now granted, when you're the king, you got a lot on your plate. And whenever you fought as much as David has, everybody kind of needs a break every now and then. He says he was napping on his couch. I think the king, who's nearly been murdered on a number of occasions, might deserve a nap every now and then. And it's totally normal for kings, whenever they decide they're too busy with other things, to send high-ranking officials like Joab in their place to go do something. But what's wrong here is that this is all stuff that's not usually definitive of David. He's the warrior. He's constantly going out defending God's people. He is there with them as the anointed one. He bleeds with God's people. And he would have had the entire fall and winter to rest. And suddenly he's just not. And we could say, well, he could be very, very busy governing. But the text says that it was late into the afternoon. So not only is the king not fighting, clearly other people are taking care of things because David is proceeding to sleep in very, very late. And we don't know how long he's been up to this. He's probably been doing it for a while. Safe to say, probably longer than the average vacation that somebody might need to recharge their batteries. You get the impression that this has now become a thing for him. 
and he gets up from his nap, and he's walking around on the roof, and this is, this is normal for people in ancient Middle Eastern times. They had flat roofs rather than the angled ones like we do, and they would, that's why in the uh, Levitical law it says, hey, put parapets or fences around the edging of your house because people customarily go onto the roof to dine. They go up there to nap. They go up there just to hang out because it's hot in the desert. So what do we do? We get up above the ground where there's a nice breeze and we hang out here. This is where you entertain people. It's essentially the living room. So it's normal for him to just get up and stroll around the roof. He's also in the king's palace on the highest hill in the entire city. So it's probably completely normal for him just to stroll around and take a look at the city. You're the king. That's what you do. There's no real suggestion that he was looking at this particular moment to get into any particular kind of trouble. And he looks down, and there are going to be houses brushing up against the palace, houses probably of other high officials in the city. And he just so happens to notice that down in the courtyard, there's a woman named Bathsheba bathing. Now, I I really don't know where this sort of persistent thing got started, where where Bathsheba was bathing on the roof as though she was trying to get attention of some kind. The text doesn't say she was bathing on the roof. It was totally normal for people back in the day to go out into a private courtyard outside of their house that was most likely latticed off for privacy and then go bathe. So he was just looking along the city and just so happened to see somebody bathing. Everything's fine, really, except for his laziness up to this point. But the problem is, he lets this particular moment start to eat away at him. And he asks, hey, who is this? And somebody who's probably picking up a little bit on what David's putting down, because it's not too hard to put two and two together whenever a dude sees a pretty girl bathing and says, hey, hey, who's that? So somebody who cared about him probably picked up on the vibe here and said, that, uh, that's Bathsheba. And we notice she's identified by the people around her, not because they're trying to be patriarchal or misogynistic like she doesn't matter. It's because the people surrounding her are incredibly notable people. Her father is a lion. That, in scripture, is considered one of David's 30. One of his best warriors. So essentially, this right here, is a Navy SEAL. David has fought and bled with this man on a number of occasions. Then her husband is Uriah, the Hittite. He is even even higher classification of elite warrior because he's one of the mighty men. Not only is he an elite warrior, he is in the inner circle of elite warriors. This guy has been with David for a long time. He's seen some stuff. They've been in the trenches. And the text doesn't say it here, but on top of that, she's the granddaughter of Ahithophel, who is the highest advisor in the entire kingdom. The houses immediately surrounding the palace are going to be the houses reserved for important people who need a short walk because they're going to be frequently coming in and out of the palace to take care of things. This was the wife and the daughter and the granddaughter of people incredibly important to David. His friends. They might as well be his family. And it's not enough to stop him. Because he doesn't even go to her. He just sends some people out to go get her in secret. 
and they bring her. And he takes advantage of her and just sends her on home. And the text says, parenthetically, that she was purifying herself, i.e., she was ovulating. David didn't know. He probably didn't care. He didn't ask, most likely. And a little while later, she decides to inform him she's pregnant. And he is freaking out for pretty good reason, because under the Levitical law, adultery is punishable by death. And so he decides to try to cover this business up by going to pull her husband off the battlefield. So in the middle of a big, important battle, a siege that they've been working on for probably a couple months at this point, he pulls one of the elite warriors randomly off of the battlefield, brings him home, tries to get him all liquored up, and tries to slip him in on his wife so he can pass off this kid as Uriah's. And when it doesn't work, because Uriah has consecrated himself at this time to the battlefield that was customary for them, he is making sure he is ready to defend the king at all times out of solidarity with his brothers in arms. And so clearly after a couple times of trying to get him to do the deed with his wife and cover up this whole baby business, it doesn't work. So out of desperation, he does the most audacious thing you can possibly do and literally puts a note in Uriah's hand, a sealed note for Joab that says, hey, make sure Uriah doesn't come home. The guy was literally sent back to battle with his own death note. And so out on the battlefield, Joab orders for Uriah and his people for whatever reason or another, but Uriah is a good soldier. He follows orders really, really close to the enemy wall, and then all of the other forces totally back off, leaving them wide open, not just Uriah, but a number of other people who are probably also elite warriors, to be pelted by arrows from the enemy wall, and then everybody just abandons them whenever they get surrounded by the enemy forces that then come charging out of the wall. And so this message comes back to David, and he just casually says, Stuff happens. Keep right on with the siege. So then Bathsheba is told that her husband is dead, and she goes through the period of mourning. And the moment that period of mourning is up, David swoops in, brings her into the palace. She is now my wife. Problem solved. Nobody knows anything. Yet a little while later, God gives a word to Nathan, one of the kingly prophets, somebody who's going to be regularly in David's presence to help him know the word of the Lord. And Nathan knows what's up. And he is going to go confront the king, which could really wind up with his head on a pike if he's not careful here. Because David's committed not just one now, but two capital offenses. And really more because other people died with Uriah. So he's just as responsible for all those deaths too. So Nathan begins to tell David a parable of sorts. He says, so there's a rich guy and there was a poor guy and they are neighbors. And the rich man has flocks and flocks and flocks of sheep. Ready to just 
do whatever with. And the poor man has one little lamb. A tiny little lamb that he feeds from his own hand, allows into his house at night to sleep to protect it. He loves this little lamb like it was his own child. And one day when the rich man gets a visitor, instead of killing one of his own multitudes of sheep, he tells servants to go and take the poor man's little cherished lamb. And that's what they have for dinner. And he asked, Nathan asked David, what should be done to this man? And David is heated. He understands what's been done here. And so he says, that man should surely be, get this, put to death. And before he gets put to death, he should repay not just one lamb, but fourfold what he took from that man. So he owes him four times the amount. And that's precisely where we pick up here in chapter 12, starting at verse 7. So then Nathan proceeds to tell David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if all of that were still too little, I would have added more to you. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. And have taken his wife to be your wife. And killed him with the swords of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me. And taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And down a little bit further, he then says, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. When the king thought he was totally safe, totally clear, and free of all consequences. The text says, but what David had done displeased the Lord. And he sends a bit of accountability to his anointed man and informs him that there are consequences for everyone's actions, even the king. But all of this seems so random, so fast, so abrupt. But most likely what happened in David's life as he accrued fame and victory and wealth. And by this point, probably a number of wives. And then on top of the wives, concubines. That's how people made peace treaties back in the day. The foreign king I have defeated, I don't want to totally squish him. What do we do? We make a peace contract. We seal that by me marrying one of the princesses. So he's probably got a little, a good-sized little harem going at this point that helps uphold the land. He had every reason, if he was so inclined, to go visit any one of his wives. He could have had any number of heirs properly. He had plenty of time to rest. 
But yet at some point in all of his success and all of his fame and all of his goodness and all of his wisdom, David grew complacent. It wasn't that he wasn't very appreciative of all the things God had done for him in his life. I'm sure he was grateful for things, but for whatever reason, he just didn't seem to care in this moment. And he forgot how good God was to him. Because complacency for an opulent person or opulent societies can be the biggest killer. You're not suffering. You're not weeping. You're not gnashing your teeth. You're not so bitter with God that you just turn your back on him. Things are just so good. You just don't think about him. And you do this long enough and long enough and long enough and suddenly you find yourself doing things that you never thought you would have done in a million years. Because the guy that wouldn't even attempt to kill the man trying to murder him is now murdering multiple innocent people. And I remember having a conversation with somebody. I can't even remember the specifics of the conversation. Um, but we were talking about things that are happening around us. And they said, well, I just, that's too much. I, I would never do that. And this is not me. I'm not clever enough for this. So just something sort of welled up in me that was clearly a spirit thing. And it's always just stuck with me where I said, don't, don't put any kind of evil past yourself. Because that's probably when you're unintentionally the closest to it. Is when you're not even bothering to defend against it. And so David's chickens come home to roost. And he now has to deal with the consequences of his actions. He put multiple people to death. So now his family is going to be constantly plagued by violence. And as we go on, you're going to read about this as it progressively gets worse and worse and worse. He's told he is going to know what it's like to lose a bride because people are going to come and do coups against him. And what was customary in the day is that you steal the king's concubines because this is a symbol of having the power of the king whenever you have his harem and steal his potential heirs. And not only did he take the son that should have rightfully been Uriah's heir by stepping in to that relationship, he's now going to know what it's like to lose sons four times over. Kind of a bit of poetic justice there. That man should pay fourfold. Well, David is going to lose one, this nameless child he's going to have with Bathsheba. Two, he's going to lose his son Amnon, who assaults his half-sister and then winds up murdered by his brother Absalom, one of David's other children. There's two. Absalom is going to be so upset with David's newfound 
apathy and laziness to his responsibility as kings, he's going to do the coup against David and then take David's wives in broad daylight for everybody to see. Because Nathan said, because you took somebody's wife in secret, your wives will be taken in broad daylight for everybody to see. And then Joab winds up killing Absalom. There's three sons. And then finally, he loses his son, Adonijah, who tries to steal the throne from Solomon. David's position, his relationship with God, being the man after God's own heart, the anointing, the presence of God in the city and in his own life, did not free him from the consequences of his actions. Because a relationship with God is not a freedom from the realities of life. There is freedom that comes with God's presence and God's spirit, but it is not an abdication of consequence and responsibility. It is not endless leisure. And so, David's found out. And he sees all of this coming. He knows, he knows God well enough to know there's no way of sidestepping this. This is all going to hit me like a freight train. What do I do? He could do what other kings have done and just get angry at the prophet's words and decide to have him killed and cover up the fact that he's committed all these crimes. And hopefully, Nathan was wrong. But David does something incredibly surprising, considering his turn of character. Instead of getting angry, instead of getting bitter, instead of trying to blame his problems on the Ammonites, or on Bathsheba, or on anybody else in the entire world, his only response to everything Nathan has said is, I have sinned. Isn't that kind of remarkable and confusing? The man who has all the power in the world at this point, who has all the power in this particular situation, who can do whatever he wants, because clearly he's used to getting whatever he wants, just sits back in his throne, probably staring at the floor, and has nothing to say except, I have sinned. And we know there's more going through his mind because he writes Psalm 51 about this whole episode that he has here with Bathsheba and Nathan. It's after his rebuke that he writes these words, probably in the time between what happened with the conspiracy to murder Uriah and before his son's death, because these words are so fresh. That's probably when they were written. He says things like, cast me not away from your presence and take not your spirit from me. 
So a rich, wealthy, powerful man has just been told, you are getting ready to lose heirs. You are getting ready to lose kingly power by your contracts and your wives and your concubines. You are going to know what it's like to feel violence and hurt. And instead of like a normal, wealthy, opulent man who's so scared of losing his stuff, the biggest thing he's concerned about is take not your Holy Spirit from me. He's seen what happens when the Spirit leaves you. He watched Saul's decay into madness. He knows what can happen. So in the middle of his wealth and his opulence and all of his corruption, there's this moment of clarity. where he understands what he's forgotten. And he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. He's admitting out loud his complacency, his failure, and he understands his inability to do anything about it. So he begins to beg God, give me a right spirit so I don't keep living this way. And remarkably, Nathan says, after David's confession of, I have sinned, Nathan says, God has put away your sin. And you won't die. The man who should have been leading Israel, who's just as corrupt as his predecessor, and who's committed multiple capital offenses, punishable by death, by law, they should have just stoned him out in the street and thrown his corpse right out of town like a sack of potatoes and just moved on. Instead, God says, I will put away your sin. And it doesn't free David from those consequences. They still come. He still feels all of the hurt, all of the pain. And notice David just says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil so that you may be justified in your words, and blameless in your judgment. Blameless. God takes everything from him, and he knows it's going to happen. And he tells God, you're just in doing so. And he knows there's nothing he can do. There's no Levitical law to help him. There's no coverage in all of Leviticus for intentional high-handed sin. If you do something that's essentially just flipping the bird to the sky and turning your back on God and rejecting him totally, the only thing you can do is be put to death. And David knows that, where he says, if I would offer a sacrifice, I, 
If I could, I would, but you would not be pleased by a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. And so after this pronouncement, Nathan just goes home. And David's left to sit in what he's done and in his confession. And over the the next few weeks, he proceeds to fast and pray and mourn for his child. Asking, God, please spare this child. But the baby dies. And as soon as the baby dies, David picks himself up, cleans himself up, has a meal to restore his strength, and then goes and praises God in the temple. A man who's just felt the most bitter loss in the world and God takes credit for doing it walks into the temple and praises that very God. Because he's had this moment of clarity that God is just. And he probably can't even begin to wrap his mind around all of this. But the only thing he can do is just say, I trust you to uphold me. And whenever people are confused and they say, David, your, your kid just died. Why aren't you mourning? He simply replies, God has done what he saw fit. And it's time for me to go back to being king. And God remembers his sin no more. And all this, what's... What's really, really interesting here, if we think about this, is that for the rest of history, of Israel's history, all kings are compared to David. David is the golden standard for royalty in this nation. And I have the feeling beings that God is all-knowing and all-powerful and all-wise and all-just, he wasn't too terribly surprised that David did this. He wasn't caught off guard. He wasn't just out of the blue. There were probably warning signs a long way off. And yet, God, before David even commits these atrocities as his chosen man, calls David... A man after my own heart. And even after he commits these atrocities, he still calls him a man after my own heart. And he says, I will remember your sins no more. interesting that whenever whenever we talk about this story so many of us have just heard it so much we just take it as warning signs that you just don't 
you just, you just don't be like David, all right? It's simple. Just don't do it. Just don't do this stuff, and you're fine. And yet, it seems like the one big detail that we seem to miss the most is the fact that he was restored. And whenever God speaks with David from here on out, it's not with the asterisk of that guy who murdered Uriah. He doesn't just constantly tap on David's shoulder, whispering into his ear, hey, go do this. And David's like, I don't feel like it. You killed Uriah. Go do it. Okay. That's not the disposition we find in either God or David. There's something incredible and truly profound that this God's character is not to look at his people and constantly see them as their worst moment. And he'll do this not just for David, but for all of his people. He says constantly throughout the prophets, from the time that Israel and Judah begin to collapse, and throughout the period of the exile into the Second Temple era where Jesus comes onto the scene, we see all kinds of phrases about how God will put away sins. Because in Jeremiah it says, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. In Isaiah it says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And they are red like crimson, but they shall become like wool. In Micah it says, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot, and he will cast all of our sins into the depths of the seas. And Daniel, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Lastly, one more from Isaiah, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud, and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. It is consistent over and over and over again throughout Scripture God is not content to leave you where you are, to constantly remind you of your failures, and to hold you to them over and over and over again, so that maybe if you just flail and white-knuckle it hard enough in this life, you might be able to measure up to something. Do better, kid. That's, that's not this God's disposition. Because... Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. God promised to David before this corruption that he would always have an heir to sit forever on the throne of Israel. And he provided that to the person of Jesus that was in his lineage. 
and gave Christ all authority to act as a good and just and priestly king that would bear God's word. And he came with a message of forgiveness. Saying, if you follow me, your sins and your transgressions will be blotted out and they will be remembered no more. No more flailing, no more struggling. Jesus said, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. And he died so that justice may be upheld. But he then lived again so that we could live with him. And sin could be covered. And Paul called himself the foremost of sinners. Another murderer that God then reforms and uses. He said, I sinned much so that people could see how much more God's grace is. Because where there is great sin, there is greater grace. Whenever we read this text and grapple with it throughout the upcoming weeks, try to understand and remember for us who live in a wealthy, opulent society, I understand we've got some stuff going on right now that's hard. You know, but we are still wealthy and opulent and privileged in the world to not fall into the trap of complacency and to let it slowly eat away at our soul until we begin to do those unthinkable things we never thought we would. Let's remember that whenever we have our failures, don't be bitter and angry with God or with others whenever we have to deal with the fallout of our own actions. You reap what you sow. And God's grace is not a get-out-of-jail-free card for reality. But to always bear in mind that even in those times where we have to taste our own medicine or in the times where we've grown so complacent, we do the unthinkable. We have completely forgotten God. He is still willing to blot out your sins, offer forgiveness, remember them no more, and consider you a son or daughter. Let go of them. He doesn't remember them. Why should you? Keep your scars, learn your lessons, but understand that's not how God sees you. You are not an addict, you are not a failure, you are not a pervert or a junkie or a lazy good-for-nothing. You are his son or his daughter. You are a new creation, so live in newness. And if you don't know what it's like to live in newness and to be forgiven, look to Jesus, where your sin can be blotted out and atoned for, and you can be made right with God. 
If you don't know what that's like, if you don't even know where to begin in that process, come talk to any of the staff people here. If you've been carrying something around because you messed up, you failed, then in our time of response, confess and leave it with God. Just leave it and remember it no more. Maybe you're like David and you're stuck in the middle of it, desperately trying to hide it, desperately trying to cover it up because you're scared that God or the people around you will reject you. But God says everything that's happened in the dark will come to light. Let it go, because there is freedom and forgiveness. The band wants to come up. So just in this time, do whatever work you need to with God. If there's something you're in the midst of, let it go. If there's something where there has been grace and there is forgiveness and yet you're still tearing yourself apart, let it go. God is not content to leave you there. Don't be content to stay there. You are a child of God and a brother and a sister to a king. Live in that life, not your old self.